to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. I am very excited for this episode. We're going to talk about acute pain, breaking a bone, headache, toothache. No one likes or wants pain. The question is, when do you need opioids and when don't you need opioids? And are there alternatives to opioids? Perhaps 100 young people may be prescribed opioid painkillers for extracted wisdom teeth or a broken bone, and only a handful may feel a strong pull of addiction after just a single pill. The problem is we do not know who that vulnerable handful is. That is why prevention of exposure is important. It does not mean prohibition of opioids, but it does mean innovations in pain management that avoid opioids when possible. The opioid epidemic has a silver lining. It engaged the medical community in solutions. All medical specialties have been activated in the issue of addiction and pain. And the medical community is rallying with solutions and innovations in managing pain better and with less addiction. Today's listener is beautiful, smart, strong, and compassionate. She's sacrificing her fairly charmed life to give back to her country. I love her so very, very much, as deeply as any mother loves her child. And that's because our listener today is my daughter, Karen. I'm very proud of being a military mother. Karen serves as an ensign in the United States Navy and as a medical student. She also has lived experience with acute pain. Hi, Hi Truth listeners. My name is Karen, and I'm a second-year medical student, as well as Dr. Love's oldest daughter. My question today stems from a personal experience I've had as a patient. A few months ago, I went to the ER with severe back pain caused by a kidney stone. The doctors seeing me were hesitant to give me anything for pain. I'm wondering if there are methods to treat pain without the risk of opioid addiction. Only the very best for my daughter and my listeners. To answer the question about acute pain and alternatives to opioids, I bring you the mother and creator of the ALTO program, Alternative to Opioids. Dr. Alexis LaPietra changed my life as an emergency physician. I used to have little enthusiasm towards seeing another emergency patient with back pain. I was frustrated not at the patient, but my own inability to offer much relief besides a shot of Dilaudid, a strong pain medication that numbs up the entire body, clouds the mind, and is not specific to back pain. And now, I'm excited to treat a person with back pain and offer trigger point injections that can have better results than opioids. Dr. LaPietra changed my viewpoint on many different pain conditions that present to the emergency department with alternatives to opioids, ALTO. Dr. LaPietra is System Chief for Pain Management and Addiction Medicine, as well as Fellowship Director for Emergency Medicine Pain Management Fellowship and Emergency Medicine Addiction Medicine Fellowship at St. Joseph Health in New Jersey. She founded the Pain Management Addiction Medicine section of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Her work has been highlighted in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, NPR, NBC, The New York Times, Fox News, and CNN. 
Her work was the basis of the ALTO in the ED Act, part of the H.R. 6 Support for Patients and Communities Act, signed into law by President Trump in October 2018. Dr. Alexis LaPietra's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Dr. Alexis LaPietra, welcome to High Truths. We're so excited to have you join us. Thanks, Dr. Love. It's really an honor and pleasure to be here. So uh, I, I I show off about your Alto program and I and it really changed my perspective and how I treat patients. Um, and there's so much more creative ways in treating pain that's actually more effective uh, uh, than opioids. And I've even when I give presentations, just so you know, I made a slide of the various Alto solutions that you come up with to show them as an example. I think you're really one doctor who made an impact locally at your own place, but really. It, it was so effective that it made a, a national movement. Can you tell us how you, how did you come up with that? Where you were very early in the frontiers of, of finding these solutions. Sure. So in 2014, I was actually finishing up my residency and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life post-residency. And in kind of the string of shifts I had, I had quite a few opioid overdoses and I was going through a bit of Narcan. And then I also had this string of acute painful patients, like every other bed was a patient needed Narcan, a patient who needed an opioid script. And at the end of the 12 hour shift, I thought, wow, today I've given a whole bunch of opioids and I gave a whole bunch of Narcan. Is there a happy medium? Then that week during our residency didactics, one of our anesthesiologists, Dr. Tally Burns, gave us a lecture on ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia for pain. And I thought, wait a minute, anesthesia using the ultrasound probe, a needle, and some numbing medication is relieving all of this pain and suffering when patients have broken bones or need surgery. In the emergency department, we have an ultrasound, we have needles, and we have numbing medication. And I just gave all these opioids, and then I just gave all this Narcan. I went to my chairman, Dr. Mark Rosenberg. He's the current president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And I said, what do you think about this? We're, we're in this conundrum. It was uh, There was a lot of media around opioids with celebrities who had opioid use disorder, fatalities related to overdose. And he said, you know, we need to be part of the solution here. What are we thinking? We got together with the anesthesiology department and we started to brainstorm about how we can manage pain better. We realized we needed a champion. We needed to change really everything about emergency medicine pain management. And there was an agreement that I would spend a year rotating with all the different specialties in the hospital, mainly anesthesia, and figure out where was the overlap with pain management that everybody else was doing and pain pain management in the emergency department. After fellowship, when I came back down to the ED, it was blaringly obvious that there were many deficits Uh, There were many alternatives that had been studied. There was great literature, but it wasn't emergency medicine literature. That doesn't mean we can't do it. So what came to fruition was after a robust uh, literature review, collaboration with some other early pain pioneers, such as Dr. Sergei Matov out of Amonides in Brooklyn, with his guidance, with anesthesia's guidance, with the support of Mark Rosenberg, the ALTO program developed. And, and it was just a better way to manage pain that took evidence from different specialties, but evidence that was still applicable to the ED patient. 
for example, the nerve blocks. The anesthesia was during ner doing nerve blocks with some education and more focused scope of practice. We can be doing nerve blocks in the ER. Same thing you're talking about dental pain. Physical medicine and rehab physicians are doing trigger point injections in the office. We should absolutely be doing them in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And what we asked of our physicians was a departmental collaboration. Every doc in the department, every nurse in the department as a team, we were going to start addressing pain differently. And that was going to be a comprehensive, targeted, evidence-based opioid sparing strategy to pain. So instead of reaching reflexively for oxycodone or Percocet, because that's just what we've used, instead, we were going to look at the evidence. So if you come in with low back pain, the evidence says opioids are actually not as good. The evidence says we should combine a different medication, a few different medications. We should do trigger point injections. We should do patches. Let's try this approach. You know, Dr. Lev, if that fails, then we need to rely on opioids. We don't want to demonize opioids but opioids can be harmful and we just need to respect when we use them and when we don't use them. And this took off, you know, there were early adopters. I spent a lot of time uh, nudging people, tapping them on the shoulder. Hey, you have a back pain. Let me show you a few new tips and tricks. But ultimately the program spoke for itself. Patients were satisfied. Our opioid use was down and our pain score was down. We were not subbing out oxycodone in lieu of acetaminophen just to say we weren't giving opioids. We were actually able to really relieve that suffering and treat that pain. We just didn't know that these medications really existed before in emergency medicine. And it, it picked up steam. I think there, every physician out there was trying to do something better. We knew we were in a crisis. We know emergency medicine physicians do not contribute to the majority of opioid prescribing, but that doesn't mean that we can improve what we're doing on the front lines. We may be the first doc any patient sees for pain. So let's start the conversation off with opioid sparing strategies, targeted therapy, and promoting alternatives. And that's been effective. And I think, you know, the effort in the emergency department, but all the medical specialties, I say we've really, at this point, ended the opioid prescription epidemic um, because a number of prescriptions have gone down with these innovations from various medical specialties. And really, you've been the pioneer, like, again, the mother of the ALTO program. Um, you know, when you're, you're right, the emergency physicians were not the majority of the pain prescriptions out there, but we were often the last physician and probably still are the last physician who sees someone before they died. So it's an uh, an opportunity for intervention, um, uh, in 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 many different ways. Um, in looking at the prescriptions and saying, "Oh my goodness, there's many drug interactions. I'm worried about you." And now that we're better at that, um, with various different uh, drug use and 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 connecting people to treatment and and making an intervention. Can we just talk about a few examples? I want to show our listeners some a few examples of things that could be done. Um, one example is my daughter's having kidney stone. She is uh, across the country, the pandemic, calling me, uh, throwing up in the bathroom and, and hurting her flank. And it's really hard to be a mother physician um, and send your daughter to the emergency department. Um, and I presumably thought she had a kidney stone. Um, on her first visit, she, you know, was a very good patient quietly uh, for several hours. Didn't, 
you know, get anything for pain. They just made a diagnosis, went home and continued with terrible pain. And, um, you know, she's not someone who uses drugs or even over-the-counter medications and the over-the-counter medicines weren't doing. And she went uh, for a second time, the emergency department. Um, I told her that her experience will make her a better physician actually, because of uh, learning about biases, diagnosis, treatment, and including, you know, family and decision-making. But what are your innovations for treating kidney stones? It's a terrible, very painful problem. People say it hurts more than having a baby. Um, what uh, what are some things you could do about kidney stones instead of opiates? Sure. So kidney stones really, you know, just like you said, people really come in and they have excruciating pain. Uh, to address the first issue with not, not treating pain, the ED docs are busy, as you know, we're running around, um, you know, your daughter, presumably young, healthy female, they're thinking kidney stone. Um, especially a quiet patient who's not screaming or demanding, you know, we, we get distracted. And what I would say is one of the major issues with any kind of pain and treating the pain is it is a subjective complaint. Oftentimes until the doc sees objectively what the issue is, maybe it's the fracture on x-ray or the stone on ultrasound or a CAT scan, we don't really treat. We think, okay, yes, they're uncomfortable, but let's just see what's going on. Uh, as physicians, first do no harm is really ingrained in us as one of our vows when we enter this profession. And we often don't want to give anything until we know what's going on. But there are so many safe medications we can give for kidney pain or abdominal pain, even if we're not sure what the diagnosis is. And I would say that some of the newer medications that have come out for kidney stone pain were promising in the beginning, maybe not the silver bullet, bullet we were looking for. And, and that referring specifically to intravenous lidocaine for pain. For kidney stone pain, the research is out there that anti-inflammatories are king or queen. And they're really the medication that we should all be reaching for. So in a patient who has presumably flank pain that we assume is going to be kidney stone pain, before before we verify that, we really do need to offer analgesia up front. Unless a patient is actively crashing, meaning we are thinking that their life could be lost, we do need to remember pain needs to be treated. Pain is an extremely um, upsetting emotion. It can cause a lot of downstream effects in terms of the immune system. So we want to treat that upfront. If, you know, if the patient is stable, then that needs to be addressed. So something like anti-inflammatories should have been started immediately. If the patient such is vomiting. Such as Tordal. Such I mean, as Tordal. Like, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we used to think more is better when it came to NSAIDs. We used to give 30 milligrams or 60 milligrams of Tordal or Ketorolac. But Dr. Matav did quite a few beautiful studies highlighting the analgesic ceiling. So that means we don't get any more pain relief at a higher dose. So that analgesic ceiling for Ketorolac or Toradol is actually 10 milligrams, not the 30 or the 60 that we were giving. And why does that matter? Yeah, you know, it is interesting because we we want to, you know, give that dose of something and say, yeah, I've done the best I can right now. I'll come back and evaluate you. But sometimes that larger dose has, has side effects. For example, Ketorolac is a medication that has a high risk of upper GI bleed. And of course, we don't want to give anything that causes bleeding. A 10 milligram or 15 milligram dose of Ketorolac offers as much pain management as you're going to get, but it lowers that, that risk because you're not giving such a large dose. So we should, again, be giving intravenous anti-inflammatories like Ketorolac or Tordal. 
And if the patient's not vomiting and they can take something by mouth, ibuprofen, 400. That is the analgesic ceiling. We don't need to give 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. I, I see it you know, a lot and I hear it a lot. Oh, I had, I have pain, I have history of kidney stone. So I just took 800 of Motrin. Well, if you do that a couple times a day, you're gonna set yourself up probably for some stomach irritation. And if your stomach is irritated, you're not gonna take it anymore. You're gonna say, it's not working, I need something else. And that's when we escalate. That's when the doc says, well, gosh, if the ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil is not working, then we'll probably have to go to opioids. But if you use the analgesic ceiling of these medications and you give the lower dose, which is gonna give you the most pain relief that you're gonna get no matter what, you can allow that patient to finish a course of that medication over the next couple days while the situation resolves itself without you know, causing those adverse effects and possibly failing treatment. So step one for kidney stones is gonna be anti-inflammatory. It relaxes the tube where the stone is stuck. It, it allows hopefully that stone to pass with less pain. Well, I think you have a really good point that, that I, I want our listeners to hear um, and emphasize is that more is not better. Um, 800 of Motrin is not better, doesn't give you more pain relief and maybe more dangerous than 600 or 400. And, and that's true for pain medications, a lot of medications, right? Just uh, added, there are dose restrictions uh, for a reason. And it's a narrow window between a medicine being helpful and therapeutic and becoming a poison or, or, or harmful. And that's why it's, it's important to stick to those dosages. Exactly. And we, and when people say the medication's not working anymore because they've succumbed to the side effects, that's when we have to escalate. And our goal here with the alternatives to opioids movement is simply reducing opioid harms. It's not getting rid of opioids, and it's certainly not saying you can't give them. Opioids are very, very important, and some people need to take opioids every day for chronic pain, and people do very, very well. So I use the analogy of insulin. Insulin is a very scary medication, whether or not people realize insulin can, can cause coma and can cause death in high yep. enough doses. Mm -hmm. So when we give people insulin, if anybody listening has been on insulin, I hope you had a robust conversation either with a physician or somebody in the medical field, nutrition, diabetic educator about how to take it properly. With opioids, we have failed to have that conversation. So Again, we're not saying opioids are terrible, take them off. It's just, we need to have a respect for them and we need to empower our community to understand when they are appropriate and when they become harmful. And that's also with silly things like Motrin. You know, 800 milligrams of Motrin can make your stomach bleed. You know, it's not gonna happen to everybody, but you just don't need that much. Mm -hmm. So these are the, the things that we need to do for medicine and for our patients is we need to start talking about pain, talking about some of the over-the-counter over -counter medications, the risks and the benefits. Right. And is, so is lidocaine out for kidney stones? That proved not to be, I remember you were, you were using that at the beginning. Yeah, we were, we were, we were excited. We were hopeful. There were some studies. They were not the best studies that were out there that came out of Iran that, you know, they were compelling. We were um, wanting to reach for the alternatives. We were hopeful the alternatives would be a great substitute for the opioid as the 
as, as really we started to gather the data and, and look closer at it and had more experience over time, IV lidocaine is certainly a tool that should be in our toolbox, but it is not that silver bullet that's going to solve mm. all our kidney stone woes. It should be reserved for patients that either are unable to take the gold standard like anti-inflammatories or a patient in which the anti-inflammatories are not working, but they are not able to escalate to opioids. As we have a growing population of patients with the medical disease of opioid use disorder, there certainly needs to be that conversation. NSAIDs are not working. We might need to escalate to opioids. There's a group of people that are not going to want to take the opioid for whatever mm -hmm. the reason, whether it's prior issue, whether it's they just personally don't want to take it, allergy. So the lidocaine works. It doesn't work 100% 100% of the time. It's not going to relieve all that pain, but it is part of what we call a multimodal response, which means if we use one single medication, we're just going to get as much relief as we can out of that one. If we add a few, they actually work together. Synergistically, they work together. They combine to give us a more robust response. So when we start combining a few things, we're going to get a lot more bang for our buck. And lidocaine should be something that's considered when we're trying to approach the kidney stone patient and we're having some issues with those standard go-to medications. The patient should be on a monitor. So where we would put the sticky little cardiac monitor on the patient's chest. We want to go ahead and look at their heart rate. We want to monitor their blood pressure and we want to be careful with the dose. We want to give, you know, this pain dose, which is about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Probably we don't want to go over 200 milligrams. So there's certainly, we need to learn about the medication. We need to learn the safety if we want to use this as physicians, uh, but it, it should be something that's investigated because in this time where we're focusing on opioid sparing evidence-based strategies, there is some evidence. And we do want to include it, but we want to have the background and that confidence to use it appropriately. It's great, and and uh, there I've we've all run into patients who don't want opioids, and we we have to respect them, even though it, it, it's hard. You just broke your arm, or I had a gentleman who had acute appendicitis, and he burst his appendix. He needs to go to the operating room, but he really didn't want any opioids, and there are alternatives. Um, one of them, and I'm going to have a, an episode on this, is ERAS, early um, recovery after surgery, where again, those uh, blocks and anesthesia that, that lasts longer so people don't have pain are, are ways of doing that. I don't know if you have the ERAS program at your hospital. Yes, we do. We do. And it's been That's really great. great. And it's, yeah, it's something else the surgeons have done to really, you know, to step up to the plate uh, with the, the opioid epidemic. Um, Let's talk a little bit about back pain. Very, very common problem in uh, in America at, at large. And people come into the emergency department. It's, it's terrible. They can't move. Um, um, you know, they can't even take off their 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 pants to do a, a good exam. And um, the reason I said that I used to be annoyed. It's like oh, another back pain. It's it's not because I'm I'm upset about the patient, but upset about the lack of solutions. Like, what am I going to do now? Just give a shot of dilated. But now it's like, oh, somebody with back pain. Now I can try something creative. Trigger point injections, like you mentioned, and I think that you advocate about doing dry 
needles and I've been using um, anesthetic in it, a long acting anesthetic like bupivacaine that lasts six hours. And I love that because now all of a sudden the patients can put on their clothes and they can't even believe that they, it even works for things like sciatica. Mm-hmm. So but I agree with you, uh, back pain, <laughs> you know, we see so much back pain and we really felt we were between a rock and a hard place traditionally in emergency medicine. It was, it was opioids and benzodiazepines. So it was Percocet and Valium. Um, and what else am I using? And a lot of patients who have back pain, they look horrible. And, and, you know, if any of us who have had that back pain, the, your back muscles you use for everything, even even taking a good breath. So living with back pain is is pretty much intolerable. So when patients would come into the emergency department, you'd say, you need the big guns. I'm going to give you the opioids. I'm going to give you the Valium because you deserve it. And what they deserve is good quality pain management. So that's not up for debate. What we now know is based on the science, the opioids and the benzodiazepines are the worst to give for that acute musculoskeletal sprain or strain. So this is not the chronic group. This is the group that slipped on the ice, got in a motor vehicle collision, attempted to lift a couch, and you wake up the next morning and you can't get out of bed. Your back is in spasm and it's in terrible pain. So the first layer of pain medication medication that should be started in this group are, again, the anti-inflammatories. Ben Friedman did some wonderful studies looking at anti-inflammatories alone and anti-inflammatories in combination with an opioid. And he actually found that the addition of the opioid did not provide better pain management. So the foundation is treating and targeting the source of pain, which is inflammation in the muscles. So to talk a little bit about how opioids work, we'll highlight why you don't always need to use them. Opioids cause this pleasure neurotransmitter called dopamine to spike in your brain. It's a similar neurotransmitter for when you eat a really delicious meal or you go shopping or you see a loved one and you feel joy and you feel euphoria. Well, when you take opioids, your brain is flooded with joy and euphoria. And you know what? You don't care that you have pain. It just masks the pain. And so we need this in medicine. We need to mask pain in medicine. But with back pain, it's all inflammation. Well, we have our medications that stop inflammation, like ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, Naproxen. Those medications actually treat. So we don't have to rely on masking when we can treat the source of pain. So starting off with an anti-inflammatory is the best thing for that muscle that is actually inflamed. We've also found that if you add something like acetaminophen or Tylenol, which in of itself we don't consider a really great pain medication, but again, with that multimodal synergistic combination of medications, the studies show the musculoskeletal inflammation is better when you have anti-inflammatory and Tylenol added together. So instead of just masking the pain and not caring, we're using two medications to treat. If that's not effective, we're going to keep going because we have inflammation that can be helped. So for example, that trigger point injection, a trigger point injection, there's a couple different ways to do it. There is that dry needling, which can be done by non-medical professionals, but the true trigger point injection procedure, like you described, involves injecting a substance. You take a needle, you put it into a very, very nasty, tightly wound knot of muscle, and you use the needle just ever so gently to break up that muscle spasm. The the focus is really on telling that muscle to relax. If you take these medications by mouth and they're all going throughout your body, they sometimes don't get into that knotty spasm, but the tiny needle can 
poke the spasm and it actually causes that muscle to mechanically inactivate, just to stop squeezing and to just ah, relax. So the trigger point injection is a wonderful way to really focus on treating a small source, a tiny area of muscle spasm. And then because you used a needle to stop that pain, the numbing medication quiets down the pain that you just caused because you were poking them with a needle. So they come in with pain, you have to use a needle to stop the pain. And then you give a little bit of that medication like bupivacaine, it quiets it all down. And you have a patient who couldn't even sit up to a patient who's standing up and putting their pants on. I know it's just, it's wonderful. It really is. And I I don't, you know, historically we just weren't doing it just because emergency medicine docs were doing, you know, we were focused a lot on life-saving stuff and you know what pain management is life-saving stuff. We, we need to know these tools. And and the last thing I'll mention are Those are the most um, satisfied patients because the people who are, who come in with a terrible accident, we save their life and put them on a ventilator and COVID, they never remember us. They never think no, us. They don't. They don't. <laughs> right. we're, we're some mirage, yes. Right. Yes. Um, and it's the small things like helping someone get their pants on that they're very thankful. Yes. You know, getting back to real life, people have mm-hmm. jobs and hobbies and families at home. And when they can't get out of the bed, that causes significant catastrophic consequences to how they're going to go about their day. And I've even used those trigger point injections for people with fibromyalgia who have the IIIs kind of everywhere and they can't really even describe all the different places. And I just, okay, you know, I'm going to give you five different spots we can hit. What are your top five and whatever's left in the syringe, we'll do that. And and they get relief as well. So it's, it's worked. Um, Dental blocks. That, now that's something I've done my entire career because I married a dentist and now I have a son who's a dentist. So I've always loved dental blocks. And I, I think that there's um, no indication at all for um, intravenous or intramuscular opioids for dental pain um, because there's such better longer term solution with dental blocks. How, how, um, how are you doing with that? I agree. Uh, there are I'm, you know, anybody who's had dental pain, myself included, that's another type of pain where you feel almost like your head splitting open. It's to the point where you, you can't even focus. That dental pain is really pretty horrific. So another goal of, of pain management in the emergency department is breaking that pain crisis. And there's nothing like a numbing medication or local anesthetic to break crisis. The local anesthetic essentially numbs any pain to the point where it will be non-existent. And that's a beautiful thing when you, when we talk about dental pain. So when you need to have your tooth drilled or pulled out of your jaw, the dentist simply numbs that area. You just don't feel anything. So if you come in with pain, similarly, we just need to numb that area. We're not going to extract the tooth in the emergency department or fill the cavity in the emergency department. Doing anything other than a dental block is really just putting a tiny band-aid on a larger problem. So ibuprofen, Tylenol, yes, you know, they might take the edge off the pain, but when someone comes in with that extreme 10 over 10 or 50 over 10 pain, really, we need to block it. Traditionally, we do a lot of dental blocks in our emergency department, but we've been able to expand in collaboration with oral maxillofacial surgery and dentistry to not only do these simple little single dental blocks, but larger regional blocks that provide 
relief to bigger parts, uh, to more significant injuries and patients. I mean, when they come in in tears and they're sweating and we do that small injection of numbing medication, they can eat, they can sleep. It's really life-changing. It's gratifying. It feels good. And you are really able to help at that point. Yeah. I, again, uh, a complaint that'd be like, oh, dental pain becomes, you know, wow, this is somebody you could really make a difference with. Basically, you'll have that 10 or 50, like you said, out of 10 pain to zero because it's anesthetized. It's zero. Yes. yes. Um, fractures. Somebody who um, breaks a, a bone or, or a rib or their, their femur, the biggest, largest, heaviest bone in the body, treating something horrendous like broken bones with... Um, giving again, 10 out of 10, zero out of 10 pain with no opioids. Yes. And I'll tell you, this is my favorite. Uh, I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to see ultrasound guided regional anesthesia or nerve blocks really become a emergency medicine point of care procedure. Because as mentioned, you cannot get anybody from a 10 out of 10 to a zero when you use opioids. The opioids mask the pain, but the higher you go, the more risk you have that you'll cause the patient to stop breathing because you cannot help the way the opioid works in the body. And the higher you give, the higher dose the opioids are, the more risk you have that they just inherently shut down the breathing center. That's just how they work. So you have to give just enough to try to get the pain improved, but you can't go too high because then the patient stops breathing. So really you're chasing your tail while the patient has this big break in their large femur. And every time they shift in the bed, they have to maybe use a urinal or a bedpan. It's excruciating. So we take this numbing medication, this local anesthetic, we put it around the nerves that are relaying those pain signals to the brain. And we just block the nerve. We just put the nerve to sleep, the nerve stops transmitting those signals of, holy crap, I have a broken bone, and it just goes quiet. And then the patient literally has no pain. It is a profound moment to watch a poor patient who's writhing in agony from pain after your injection, be able to be quiet and rest with no concern about their breathing. There are, of course, risks whenever we use local anesthetic and patients need to be on the cardiac monitor and we have to be diligent about how we're injecting and the doses that we're giving. So yes, there's got to be understanding about how to do the procedure, but you just can't get this kind of pain relief from opioids. So I'm hoping as emergency medicine physicians become more savvy with using the ultrasound, we will be able to really stop any form of pain. Even in the past five years, we went from doing kind of these small injections of rib fractures that were, it's not really clear. We were feeling the bone and trying to be near the bone to being able to use an ultrasound to see exactly where, for example, the serratus anterior muscle is or the erector spinae muscle is. And by visualizing these muscles on the ultrasound, you can put your needle exactly where it needs to be. You can push some numbing medication exactly in the spot where the nerves are. And in about 10, 15 minutes, patients will take nice big breaths with multiple rib fractures. They can sit up with rib fractures. It's It, re it really is profound. And I'm, I'm hoping this is where we're going. And there are parts of the United States and hospital systems that have um, a regional block team. Um, and they could be emergency physician or anesthesiologist or any really specialist who's with the skills. And you would call and say, you know, we have a rib fracture and that team 
uh, of specialists, it, and it doesn't have to be the ER staff, but they come and deal with that acute uh, situation. And so um, there, there is a movement around the United States um, or, or getting those kind of teams um, set up to help with acute pain from fractures. Um, spinal headaches. Um, you have some interesting innovations with spinal headaches. Tell us what a spinal headache is and, and what are some creative solutions to, to treat uh, without um, opioids? So the Alternatives to Opioids program really focuses more on just that general headache or migraine, um, you know, that quote unquote spinal headache or post-dural puncture headache. We have not gotten there yet with Alto. I think we're still relying on anesthesiology to do that blood patch. But oh, you when- haven't used this uh, sphenopalatine block with the lidocaine? That we use for general headache or migraine, but for that quote unquote spinal or postural puncture headache, we have not used that yet. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so really the, the, we have quite a toolbox for general headache and migraine, and that would include sphenopalatine block, lower paracervical block, and occipital nerve blocks. And these are relatively novel for emergency medicine. Some of them are easier. Some of them are a little bit uh, more complicated. You need to have a little bit more expertise. But something like a sphenopalatine ganglion block is low-hanging fruit for ED practitioners to elevate their management of headache. There's this tiny little nerve bundle all the way in the back of the nose, and it plays a role in migraines and headaches, but you know, it's located all the way far back behind in someone's nose. So traditionally we would take a really long Q-tip and we would soak it in some jelly-like numbing medication. And then you insert this long Q-tip all the way into the patient's nose. And then when it hits the back of the nasal wall, it would sit on that nerve bundle. Now we have these, these cool devices called mucosal atomizing devices or MAD devices. And that's how a lot of people are administering things like naloxone or Narcan for overdoses. It mists like a nasal spray. Mm -hmm. So this we're putting numbing medication in the little misting device and you insert it into the patient's nose and you plunge one milliliter of numbing medication and it gets all the way into the back of that. Lidocaine, right? You use lidocaine or bupivacaine? We do. We use lidocaine. Um, That's really what had been studied. Bupivacaine is absolutely acceptable. You want to use the highest percentage possible, maybe a 4% lidocaine and aqueous solution. You missed one milliliter and it coats the entire nasopharyngeal mucosa, including that pesky little sphenopalatine ganglion. And again, in about 10 minutes, you have just that vicious cycle of headache broken. And you can do that in both sides of the nose for pretty significant relief. And how cool is that? Putting some spray in your nose and getting rid of a headache. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. These tools, it's really amazing. Um, It's very cool to watch. People are so grateful. You know, I think people think I'm coming to the ED. I'm going to get poked with a needle, either an IV or I'm going to get poked in my arm. And to say, you know, I'm going to give you just a little bit of nasal spray. They're very happy. And if that doesn't work, you know, we do we do have the needle methods. And, and one of which is injecting, again, that bupivacaine or numbing medication um, kind of in the muscles of the, the back of the neck. And that's the trigeminocervical complex, which is just a fancy word for a bunch of nerves that get angry with headache. You can block that. And the last thing is for occipital neuralgia, which is really a terrible condition where the uh, nerves 
that run from the back to the front of the head become really irritated. They cause profound headaches. We give, again, a little bit of that bupivacaine or that lidocaine, that numbing medication, right where we know that nerve is, and it blocks all those branches, which come all the way up from behind to the front of the head and cause just significant relief. So those are procedures that um, I learned way back in my residency days. And um, I think that you brought them to light again. But again, it's patients are so grateful. I love showing our staff, our nurses, when a patient comes in and they're throwing up and in terrible pain and agony and they're sweating. And then, you know, a minute later after putting an injection in the back of their neck in their occipital Merck, they have zero pain. <laughs> and it it's, amazing. it's, it's amazing. And it breaks the pain cycle. It doesn't mean it can't come back. It could, but usually you break that pain cycle and you're on a better path. You're exactly right. I, I think we often forget that, you know, people say, okay, I'm going to come in and you're going to give me this injection, but then I'm going to go home. So I have to keep coming back for the injection. So the answer is no. What we know scientifically is if we can break the crisis and wind down all of the goings on related to that pain. If we can get that crisis broken, we can actually maintain the pain with bimelk medications much better. So coming into the emergency department allows us to use a couple different interventions that you can't do at home to wind down everything and break the crisis. Then you're starting off, you know, it's, it's like you need a brick wall to stop a car that's going 100 miles an hour. But if we can slow the car down calmly, then we just start accelerating again slowly with those maintenance medications. So we have so many tools to just slow the car down better. And then you're just not going hundred miles an hour at home. If you have great made any sense? <laughs> I liked it. Sense. I liked it. Okay, good. <laughs> um, TENS units, other innovations. Do you use TENS units in your emergency department? So we're actually using them for post And maybe explain what they are. What are they? Sure, sure. So transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation are these fun little units. It's a box of electricity that has a couple different cords coming out with stickies on the end. You put the stickies over the area where you have pain and it's this low level, the small amount of electricity that tickles and stimulates and tingles the area of pain to kind of disrupt the nerve single signals and break again that that vicious cycle of pain. So it, it disrupts- people who go to physical therapy, they use, they're yes. used to getting that, right? Yes, you're, you're right. Not used to seeing that in the emergency department. No, you're not used to seeing that in the emergency department. Um, I think that 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 is another area that needs expansion, more research and consideration in the future. The spot where we're using it right now is post-operative geriatric hip fracture pain control because you have an older population. You want to be very careful after surgery. We want to be very careful with opioids, but also the alternatives. So anything that is not a medication with side effects, that's what we want to see. What, what Which of those works the best? So putting the TENS unit on the hip that was just operated on sends this low amplitude electricity through the muscles and the nerves and can quiet down the patient's perception of pain in that area. And that has almost no side effects. So our, our goal in medicine is minimize side effects, maximize pain. And sometimes with certain patient populations who have, you know, hypertension, diabetes, kidney disease, you can't use some of these medications because that if they're more harmful than beneficial, but the TENS unit really has very little to no harm. So we need to continue to explore when we're using that and be able to have a better idea of what patients would benefit. 
And, and those are things that people can uh, take home and use at home. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Reb Close and Dr. Casey Grover from Monterey because they bought a bunch of TENS units to to work in the emergency department and even give to patients to take home to try with acute pain. I thought that was an interesting program That's that they awesome. did. Yeah. And... Um, all right. So very many exciting ways to treat acute pain with better effects than opioids. And we mentioned that these are tools for emergency physicians, but really a lot of these things, especially the ones that don't require cardiac monitoring, can be done by a primary care physicians in the office, you know, like these trigger point injections. It'd be nice, you know, if they were adopted by more um, of the medical community at, at large. Um Let's talk. Did you hear about the X waiver? Oh, um, <laughs> of course I did. Of course, I got a million text messages and calls. And just uh, it's just something I'm I'm so proud of and worked really hard to. Eat, um, and uh, so I just wanted to see your reaction and and just to explain, um, it, it used to be that. Um, any physician with a DEA, a thou, uh, one million physicians out there can prescribe uh, opioids, uh, you know, if you have a DEA, but only, you could only treat opiate use disorder. There's only 66,000 physicians who were able to do that because they had to go through this eight-hour course to get an X waiver. And um, one of the, the last guidance issued from the previous administration is eliminating that. And uh, so I just wanted to see, are people happy about it, uh, upset about it? Did it not go far enough? Um, I'm lacking the words to describe the joy that most of us have in hearing this news. We collectively, you know, the camp of folks that I work with every day at the American College of Emergency Physicians and even locally in my own shop, we really feel like opioid use disorder is grossly stigmatized. And the buprenorphine waiver was just another unnecessary barrier for treating a group that has one of the highest mortalities of any patient population we see, yet we continue to impose these barriers on them and we continue to restrict access to care. So, uh, you know, especially at least for emergency physicians, as you know, Dr. Lev, we give medications much, much more dangerous than buprenorphine. We give medications that paralyze people to Mm -hmm. be able to put, you know, the the intubation tubes in. So to say that we can't give a life-saving medication that has a ton of evidence is, is, you know, to be frank, ridiculous. So we've been advocating for a long time, and so has many, many other organizations, to just break down the barrier. There are people suffering from a medical disease that is opioid use disorder. It is not a moral failing. I think historically, substance use disorders have just been considered a moral failing, and that historical point of view still exists in 2021. And we're talking about, you know, this is going back to the 1600s, the 1700s. -hmm. So we now just need to get with the program. Now we need to be science and evidence-based in our medicine. And the buprenorphine waiver created a barrier to getting access for an evidence-based, effective medication for a medical disease. We have no other medical disease out there that requires us to get special training in order to treat. So we are ecstatic. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And and frankly, it's stigmatizing um, because it allows physicians to say, oh, well, no, I can't treat that disease. Oh, no, you know, I don't want that. I can't take that patient. 
Um, um, can you imagine having, you know, uh, diabetes and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I don't can't give insulin, you know, give that patient to someone else. I can't treat that disease. But this is a disease, addiction is a disease that affects everybody in all parts of society. It doesn't have, you know, cultural, socioeconomic, gender, any type of biases. And uh, really any physician uh, should be able to treat that just like any physician should be able to treat, you know, asthma or diabetes or anything else without excuses. Um, and, and this was an excuse not, not to treat. I, I, um, I, I know that when I was one of the first to have an X waiver in, in my community, you know, all the doctors would come to me and say, okay, well, you write my prescriptions for me. And so overnight, it's like, oh, you can write the prescriptions yourself. And, That's and we'll right. be happy. We'll be happy to teach you how. We'll That's right. That's it. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, ASAP at least. I'm sure other organizations are gonna put forward some easy educational tools. The X Waiver class, you know, for all that it created with barriers, it allowed physicians to sit, pay attention, and really learn about not only the medical disease of opioid use disorder, but really a deep dive into the medication. So we feel any novel medication that physicians have to work with. Of course, we all know we continue to learn throughout our careers, and this is something they also need to learn about. So it needs to just be a, a nibble of information. It doesn't need to be eight hours, but it needs to be something short and sweet to let people know that this medical disease exists, to let them know that it's very, very treatable, and to let them know why they need to be doing it now. Right. And and physicians are able to learn on the fly uh, without federal mandates. And COVID is a perfect example. Got, <laughs> we, 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 were, right. we were given a disease. We had, you know, our, the beginning of the pandemic, that's all I did is was study this day and night, day and night, day and night, and, you know, looked for my first case. Um, and we learned it, right? We didn't have to get federal mandate on education. And we're still learning because every day the treatment of COVID changes and we're learning and improving without yeah, mandates. So we're, we're able to do that beautiful analogy. I really have to say I applaud that analogy and that really highlights how horrific we have been treating opioid use disorder because you're right. Here we are, a bunch of physicians who've never seen COVID before that just, you know, Godspeed, go save America. Well, you know, opioid use disorder has existed for, for, for centuries and uh, there is no excuse. If we can manage COVID with you know, guidance that changes every day and just our clinical gestalt and camaraderie and doing our best to, you know, keep up on this, then we certainly can use a medication that's been FDA approved for, you know, about many years. years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, marijuana. Do you have patients with uh, marijuana poisonings every single day in the emergency department like we do in California? Uh, marijuana drug interactions? Is it uh, uh uh, an issue with your pain and addiction program? So we are not yet recreational in New Jersey. It did pass with recent legislation. So we are mobilizing to see increases in treating cannabinoid hyperemesis and other issues that we see with Scrumiting. marijuana. Have you heard that word? <laughs> did you say vomiting? Scrumiting. Scrumiting? No. Scrumiting. The audible diagnosis. Okay, you're going to see this now, Alexis. It's an audible diagnosis. You you can hear it down the hallway of the emergency department. People in horrible agony. They're in terrible abdominal pain. They're retching, not like people, you know, people who vomit, vomit, but they're retching in agony. They want some pain medicines for their stomach. You think they have an acute abdomen. CAT scans, endoscopies, everything has been negative. And if you get a good 
drug history, you'll figure out that they've been smoking cannabis for many years and they think that it's what's supposed to help them. Oh, holy macaroni. You, you, now that I've seen this, you will see this. Um, <laughs> oh now that I mentioned that, you will see it more often. And oh. um, drug interactions. I had a, a gentleman with uh, internal bleeding and getting a good drug history is a chronic uh, marijuana user and cannabis interacts with Coumadin. Um, so, you know, there's a 400 plus drug interactions with CBD and, and THC and something more for us to be aware of and, and, and learn about. Absolutely. Um, wow. We, uh, we've been reaching more for haloperidol and also capsaicin, you know, for what we've seen for cannabinoid hyperemesis, um, the haloperidol right. seems to calm down that vomiting and pain. So an antipsychotic medication, um, to help with, with that reaction and an over the counter cream on the stomach, because you'll notice that people who, um, who have this, uh, disease cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or scrometing, um, they feel better if they say they feel better with hot showers, they, yes. then this, uh, over the counter cream on their stomach can help. Yes. Um, you have an unusual uh, program at your hospital where it's both pain and addiction. And in most places around the country, those are very separate um, departments and even different philosophies. And you have them both together. How does that work? I do. So the, you know, emergency medicine, as you know, we are the Jack and Jill of all trades. So we do a little bit of everything. We do a little bit of cardiology, a little bit of OB-GYN, a little bit of GI. So we do uh, pain management and we do addiction medicine. I did the pain management fellowship, which afforded me a really strong foundation of how to manage pain. But in there was also the spectrum of opioid use disorder, which you see develop in, in cases where people do get started on prescription opioids for pain. And sometimes we are, they go in the wrong direction and they develop a use disorder. But as I was learning more about opioids and as I was in this pain management space, what kept coming up is that in society, this opioid use problem has really three legs of a stool. So where I was in my early career of pain management was the prevention of opioid use disorder with pain management and alternatives. But there's also 2 million or over 2 million people who have opioid use disorder. And a percentage of that is because of prescription opioid medications from a doctor. And then the third leg of that stool is harm reduction with access to naloxone, even things like uh, access to clean needles and HIV or hepatitis testing. So when I was in this pain management leg, I kept feeling like there was more we can do for opioid use disorder. We do not have a robust addiction medicine program at our institution currently. And in talking with senior leadership, they felt strongly about developing that. And I felt strongly uh, moving in that direction. ASAP played a large role in that. Colleagues of mine who I kept running into at different conferences. And I felt a draw. I felt if, you know, opioid use disorder in of itself is pain management. It's, it's pain uh, from a medical disease, there's phys physical pain with withdrawal, there's psychological pain with the use disorder, and it almost seemed like a natural transition to try and learn more about this. So when I petitioned senior leadership to not only continue working with the pain management 
at the institution, but also folding in more addiction medicine, mostly medications for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine and methadone. They were able to provide resources, the psychiatry department, the anesthesia department, everybody was very supportive because we felt that this was crisis and we needed to bring all the troops together. So I do have a lot of help from anesthesia and psychiatry and internal medicine and orthopedics. I'm, everybody's together, but I do champion the programs. And I, I just felt that it was an important, I just felt that it was time to mobilize and flex to the, to the crisis that was the opioid epidemic. And uh, really through a lot of mentorship, I was able to gain some knowledge and fill in some gaps and I have a very flexible, innovative C-suite. And I'm really, really honored to be able to work at an institution that uh, took this idea that we need to do it better. And it was a patient safety initiative and, and gave me the resources to just move forward. Yeah, and and really, really proud of your hospital system because you were very much on the front lines. And addiction medicine, I have to say, is extremely important and is a huge gap. We had an episode on High Truths with Dr. Trim uh, Brennan, who wrote a textbook on um, addiction medicine and is on the, the board of the American College of Ad Academic Addiction Medicine. And really the vision is um, every hospital in America should have addiction medicine service. And just think about all the patients who get admitted to the hospital not including COVID, but many of them, uh, their disease is because of alcohol or drugs. Um, and we do everything, you know, um, get all sorts of specialists, cardiologists, infectious disease, intensive care doctors, and no one's really looking at their underlying problem. So you, I think you what you're right. doing is very important. And I can't wait to see what you guys do with methamphetamine, because I don't know if you've been hit it, it, the methamphetamine wave is going from West Coast to East Coast, but I'm wondering to see if you have creative answers um, to, to that terrible problem. Uh, we, since will, uh, we will get back to you on that, Dr. <laughs> Lev, because we have yet to see methamphetamine in New Jersey. Uh, really, we have not. Our, our major players are alcohol and opioids right now, and it's bizarre to me how regional yeah. the issues are. We also have <clears throat> a lot of PCP, but we do not have a lot of methamphetamine and it's quite a cumbersome, complex disease to treat. So next year when we chat, maybe we'll yeah, have some we'll innovations see. for we're, you. We're definitely <laughs> struggling with that one. Um, and I want to end with advice. Um, do you have, well, first of all, what a wonderful thing is that both of us are mothers and emergency physicians. I have four children um, and, and you're a mother of, of three with a wonderful, robust career and able to be a great mommy, as I can see um, from this uh, podcast, controlling your, your children <laughs> and giving you a, a break to chat. Um, and uh uh, so my my uh, my kids are a little farther along, but uh, do you have advice for my daughter, who's second year medical student, Karen? So I would tell her to, you know, one issue we're we're dealing a lot with is bias and stigma, and um, you know, treating the person for the person that's in front of you. So something that I've learned in my career is we are really um, we are mission driven in this field of medicine. We our mission is to help humanity. That's really, that's really the bottom line. Mm -hmm. um, we, it's such an honor. It is such an honor. We see everybody at their worst. We see them in crisis, e even in the outpatient and the inpatient setting. I would 
for all of the young physicians and providers out there is we must lead the charge on treating um, people of every color, every age, every gender, every race, every ethnicity, every language, and every medical disease they have as a human being that is created here on the earth. And we are all the same. No matter what's going on in their body, they have all the same organ systems. And when it comes down to it, we're just a bunch of elements and proteins working together. So in medical school, we learn all about that functionality, but then we get in front of people and we see the, you know, the cover of the book. And sometimes we develop these biases and these judgments, and we may not treat everybody like the simple organisms we are. So I would really just challenge the young the young providers and physicians and the older providers and physicians that, you know, with everything that's gone on politically and racially right now, physicians and providers can unite via collective holistic care of human beings as human beings. And when you yourself have pain, advocate, advocate, be collegial with your colleagues, express yourself and don't be afraid to ask questions. I'm in a lot of pain. Is there something that you might be able to offer me? I think we are often quiet. We may not feel we can interact with our physicians or providers when we see them, but we must remain human in our interactions, sit down, look in the eyes of our patients. It's very busy. It's very hard, but it's an honor and privilege to treat our fellow man and woman kind. And I think we really just have to remember we're all the same inside and we're here to serve multiple different purposes. One of them is medicine, but one of them is just really helping humanity feel better and getting back to their day-to-day. That's beautiful. And I do think for the most part, we do that in emergency medicine. Everybody's equal on the gurney. You could have the president of the United States right next to uh, somebody who's homeless and they'll be getting the same same medical care. Um, Karen, my beautiful, lovely daughter, um, who I'm so proud of, I want to say thank you for your question and supporting your mother. You're a great daughter, sister, friend, and I have no doubt that you will be a great doctor. It's a long road, but it's worth it. And it's a lifelong journey of helping others. And both I and our High Truth supporters really thank you for your service. (laughs) And Dr. Alexis LaPietra, thank you. Uh, so much for being here on High Truths, for your Alto program and your innovations. You, I have to say, you were very generous with your information. I have seen people, physicians capitalize on the opioid epidemic and try to make money off of whatever innovations that they've done. And you did not do that. You found a solution, something important, and you freely published it and shared it with the entire emergency medicine community, the entire medical community, medical students. And and I think that really paid off for, for our society and you made a difference in my career and, and physicians across the country. And I really want to thank you for that. Thank you very much, Dr. Lev. When it comes down to it, it's about patients. And if patients are not going to get the best possible care because we might not make some money off of it, that's when we all need to really take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror. So it's not, you know, it's the support of my CEO, Kevin Slavin, and my chairman, Mark Rosenberg, and the whole Alto team that we felt the entire country and world needs to benefit when we see innovations that work. And this is an example of passionate care. And I, I appreciate that so much. And I, I think we felt like we were just doing our job, but but um, medicine can um, can be capitalistic in a sense sometimes, and we're appreciative that we were able to disseminate and really appreciate that you highlighted the program here today. It's an honor. Great. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.